Turn to Nehemiah 3. Now, we just read the first six verses, had Stephen read that. On the surface, as you glance at Nehemiah 3, as you can already tell from the first six verses and onward all throughout the chapter, first glance seems nothing more than a catalog of hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names, right? A bunch of names that's hard to pronounce, unfamiliar sites. Most of these people are unrecognizable by the, by the average Bible reader. Even Bible readers read this and they say, who are these people? You, there's, no, there's no great saints here, as a general rule, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. None of that going on. No Noah or anybody like that. You have to wonder why the author of Nehemiah went to all the trouble to list all these names. All kinds of names of obscure people. Is this really necessary? You might ask yourself. Could these names have been edited out, you know, when you're reading your Bible and you see all this and you're saying, oh no, a bunch of names. Am I really going to read every name in this chapter? You ever done that when you're reading the Bible? Why didn't the author just summarize this for us, maybe for a more engaging storyline. My first thought as I looked at chapter 3 was to mention it briefly and move on quickly to chapter 4. That's what I thought most of this week. And uh, after, after all, chapter 3 is hardly considered homiletical material by pastors. You don't hear pastors saying to each other, hey, have you checked out Nehemiah 3? Some right preaching material in that section right there. They don't, nobody talks about Nehemiah 3. Now, back in the day, I used to hear, I was in a certain Bible college, which will now go unmentioned, not Clearwater Christian College. That was a great school. Another school that no one here would probably know anyway. And they had what they were called preacher boys. Have you ever heard that term? And, and, and back then, they say, the preacher boys, by the way, are guys who are allegedly training for the ministry. And uh, they would have what they called, the preacher boys would have what they called sugar sticks, sugar stick sermons. They would say, this is my sugar stick sermon. A sugar stick sermon is a sermon des- designed to wow the audience, okay? It's your best sermon. It's the best you have. It's designed to bring the house down. So you make it cool, and it sounds very cool and all this. And, and uh, there's a church in Fort Myers, Dave Sprott likes to talk about. They advertise such sermons on their sign. And on the church sign out front, it says, we have preaching that will knock your socks off. Well, this is, thank you, Bob. This is not a sugar stick sermon tonight. This is nothing of the sort. However, I do feel Nehemiah 3 has its place in the canon of, of Scripture for a reason. To be honest with you, I tried to get away from this chapter. I thought, i got to somehow get to chapter 4. How can I get there? Uh, and the more I tried to get away, the more I was drawn to chapter 3. This is the burden of expository preaching. When you preach uh, section by section, verse by verse, uh, that kind of preaching. When you're going through that, in the context, you're preaching verse by verse. When you do this, which is what this church attempts to do, somehow you, you, have, to con- you have to confront that next section. Next week, I have to confront Nehemiah 4. And somehow look at it, and to some degree or another look at it. You cannot escape the next passage in the book you're doing when you're doing this kind of preaching. That's why this is great a, a great idea, a valuable way to preach expositorily because you have to deal with all the passages. You can't run and hide from any passages. You can't do that. That does not mean that every chapter that has a bunch of names in it you need to preach a sermon on. I'm not saying that. But somehow this one did seem to be that way, that a sermon needed to be in just this chapter, I think. We'll find out. Trust me, I was back and forth on this one. <laughs> Mike knows what I'm talking about. Now, typically... 
when guys preach a sermon on no, and this section of Scripture, Nehemiah, they don't, first of all, nobody preaches on Nehemiah 3. Nehemiah 4 to 6, when they do that, they are in what we call a what? A building program, a church building program, because they're building the wall of Jerusalem in this section. And so usually you'll hear a sermon or two on, on Nehemiah 4 to 6, usually, about re, because they're in a rebuilding program for the church. But I think the Lord will forgive us for pre, attempting a message on Nehemiah 3, even though we are not in a building program for the church. We are, however, in a spiritual building program for the church because Christ is doing what? He's building his church, right? He's building his church, and the Lord is adding people as he sees fit, according to Acts. In 1 Peter 2.5, it says this, We, as God's people, are living stones. <clears throat> We're living stones, and we are being built up unto a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, one commentator I read said that Nehemiah 3 uh, is a glimpse into God's Old Testament church in action. His Old Testament church in action. The only problem I have with that statement is that there is no such thing as an Old Testament church. Church did not begin until the New Testament would be the answer there. So we do not, you know, it didn't begin in the Old Testament. We do not have a, a section, a glimpse of here into the God's Old Testament church in action. What we have here is something the New Testament church can benefit from. An Old Testament account of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And we, we've been going through Nehemiah. You remember, as Mike said today, or Stephen said in Sunday school class, where are we in the Bible when we were studying it? We're right at this point in Nehemiah. We're after the Babylonian captivity. People are coming back from Babylon, from Persia. To rebuild the city of Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple in Ezra. Now they're going to rebuild the walls in the city. And I think that the work they did then will help us in the work that we're doing now for the Lord. And let's look at six factors tonight, six factors that will hold true, not only for the, time, the work they did for the Lord then, but still is true today. First of all, their motivation was of the highest order. Didn't pass out an outline tonight because the outline is just very simple. Their motivation was of the highest order. I did pass out a, a, a diagram we're going to look at a little bit later. Now, in chapter 2 in Nehemiah, you recall Nehemiah in chapter 2 had come to Jerusalem from Persia by orders of the king, by the blessing of the king of Persia, who ruled much of the world at that time, and he had surveyed the city of Jerusalem. He discovered for himself, just like he was reported to him, yes, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, that protected the city, that secured the city from the enemies, Yes, the gates of the wall are burned with fire. It's just open. The city of Jerusalem is open, exposed to everybody. Any enemy who wants to come in can come right in. There's nothing to stop them. And so his mission was to survey that city, which it was a secret mission on chapter 2 of Nehemiah. He did it at nighttime under the cover of darkness. He only had a few men with him. Nobody else knew about this. But in chapter 2, verse 17, Nehemiah, after this survey of the city at night, decides to... Let the cat out of the bag and tell all the people the results of the survey. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, Nehemiah says, I said to all the people, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burn with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. In essence, he says this, look, guys, the damage is great, really great. A lot of rubble to clean up, a big mess. We have our work cut out for us. Let's get at it, and let's rebuild the wall. What was the response of the people? Verse 18, we'll look at the end of verse 18. 
the people say this, let us arise and build. Let's do it. They're all for what Nehemiah said. Let's, 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 let's rebuild the wall. However, in verse 19, the enemies of Judah are not so keen on this idea. Look what they say. Verse 19, when Sanballat, the Horonite, these are the enemies of the Jews, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, all three of these guys hated the Jews. When they heard that the wall was, being, was going to be rebuilt, they mocked us and despised us. Mocking and despising by the enemy. But Nehemiah is not discouraged. Look at verse 20. <clears throat> so Nehemiah answers them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. You guys have no, no part in what we're doing at all. We're going to get it done. Nehemiah is confident. He knows God's going to give them success. Remember chapter 1, verse 11? Go back to chapter 111. He's praying that the king will answer, will, will give him the go-ahead, the green light, to go to Jerusalem to rebuild. And he says in chapter 1, verse 11, in his prayer, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today in front of this king. And, so, and God hears his prayer, and God answers his prayer, and God sends him to Jerusalem, and God is bringing all this to pass you can see why he said the God of heaven will give us success. Now, Nehemiah's enthusiasm is contagious. His faith in the Lord is real. The people catch the vision. And in verse 18, they want to move ahead with the good work. This good work, it says. This is how they began this major undertaking with a <clears throat> motivation of the highest order. And what would that motivation be? They are highly motivated to do this work because they know this. This work is of God. This is God's work. And they want to do it. The Lord put this into the heart of Nehemiah. He sanctioned it. He stood behind it. He gave them ample evidence in the first two chapters that, that he wants to do this. He, he cleared the way with the king of Persia. There's no doubt in anybody's mind. Their trust is in the Lord. Nehemiah says, we're God's servants. God sent us to do this. Therefore, they must arise and build. How could they do anything but that? This was the work God gave them to do in their generation. And their generation. And they will do that work because they're doing it for him. It's his work. This is God's work. Now, do you know that in every generation, every generation throughout the Bible, God has a work to do for his people? It, it was different at different times in history. For example, it may have been building an ark at one time. It may have been conquering Canaan at another. It may have been building a temple at another time. There has always been a work for the people of God to do, and they do it for the Lord. And that includes... This generation we're presently in. We, too, have a work for God to do that God has given us. Now, the work we have to do, we're not rebuilding a wall in Jerusalem, although maybe when we get there, I hope we don't have to do that. We, uh, we are doing something different. We're proclaiming the, the gospel of Christ. We're preaching the word. We're doing the work of the ministry. We're edifying the saints. What should our motivation be? The same as theirs. There's no difference here. The same as theirs. We, too, are servants of God. And since Christ loves his church, Ephesians 5, and since he died for his church, and since he sanctifies his church, I take it that he wants us to be involved in the work of the church that he commissioned us to do. He has given this work for us to do. How do I? And, we're, and, he, and furthermore, we can say this with great confidence, the God of heaven is going to give us success doing this work. How can I say that? Is that, is that an arrogant statement? I can say it because I know this is his work. He's the one that gave us this work to do. Are there going to be difficulties? Yes. Are there going to be trials? Yes. Are there going to be problems? Yes. 
Are there going to be enemies? Yes. We may never be a, a really large church even. We may stay as we are now. We, we thought for 12 years we were in the ballroom for 12 years. We thought we were going to be there for the rest of eternity. Can you imagine the ballroom in heaven? And yet God allowed us to be in this location for this time, and he may, we don't know what he's going to do. We have no idea, but God, I can tell you this. You can count on one thing. God will accomplish his purposes. He's going to do that whatever they are. He's going to accomplish We are motivated by the Lord himself. We're motivated to do this work because we know God is sovereign over all things. We know he is faithful. He will not fail us. We know he's commissioned us to do this. And we are motivated by one thing only, and that is to glorify him. At least it should be. We should be motivated by that and that alone. Now, if any believer has a motivation other than to glorify God and to do what you're doing because you're doing it for his glory, then you're not, your motivation is not of the highest order. It's something lesser than that. Think about this seriously for a minute. What is your motivation for any activity you do in your life? It doesn't matter what it is. Whether it's changing diapers, raising children, uh, you're working at your job, uh, going to school and studying, um, teaching Sunday school, uh, working in the nursery, cleaning the church, witnessing, whatever you're doing. What are you, why are you doing this? What is your motivation? If it's something less than the glory of God, it will not sustain you in the long run. It won't do it. Our motivation for God's work is God himself. That's why we're here. We're working for God. There's no other reason to be here. You know, I'll never forget, I mentioned one Bible college, which we will forget about for right now. I will never forget when I attended Clearwater Christian College back in the late 70s into 1980. I'm very thankful. I'll always be thankful for that school. I can never forget, every time we entered the basketball gymnasium, there was a stage up front, and we'd have all kinds of different events there, and we'd go in there and have chairs throughout the, the gymnasium and whatever event was planned. And there was a sign over that stage that read this, read these words, built for the glory of God. That's all it said, built for the glory of God. And every time I went in there and sat down and saw those words, it was like chills went up and down my spine. I looked at that sign and I thought, wow, this is, I, and Dr. Steele was the president. And I knew that Dr. Steele had one motive for everything he did, the glory of God. I knew that. And when I'd see that sign, I would say, wow, this is an amazing thing. God, we're here because people want to glorify God. That is why we're here. This is, the work, this is the work being done for God. Now, what's interesting is that this same principle was at work in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Same principle. In John 4.34, Jesus said, my food, the disciples, <clears throat> he was talking to the woman at the, uh, the well of Samaria, the disciples went away to buy food. I would have been with them, probably. Let's go get some food. Jesus is dealing with spiritual matters. That's what, that was his concern. They come back, hey, do you, do you want something to eat? <laughs> Has he eaten yet? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to accomplish his work. You guys don't get it. I'm here. What's driving me is not material things or <clears throat> food or money or anything else. One thing's driving me, and that is... I want to do God's work. I want to accomplish his will. <clears throat> That's what sustained Christ. That's what kept him going, this insatiable desire to do the will of God. And as he drew near to the cross in John 17, 4, he's able to say this. When he's getting ready to leave, he says, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. What he did, he did for his Father. It should be enough. Listen to this. should be enough for us to serve the Lord simply because we love him. Simply because 
we want to do what he wants us to do. We should join him in this work because we know this is his work. This is the will of God. There's no need for any other motivation. That should be good enough. The second factor I want us to look at in this chapter, the spiritual leaders were willing to get their hands dirty. They were willing to get their hands dirty. Verse 1, Then Eliashib the high priest arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. Now, bring out your mysterious diagram that I gave you. Some of you, if you don't have this, we have some around. I don't know if there's any left over or not. But this is a very important sheet of paper, (laughs) at least for Nehemiah chapter 3 it is. Now, you're going to see different... I'm bringing some details up, not tons of details here. We're not going to cover every detail in this chapter. Geographically and historically, we'll be here the entire night. But I want to give you just a heads up on a few things because it talks about gates. Remember, what are we doing in chapter 3? We're rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, right? So we're talking about the gates in the wall. We're talking about towers along the wall. We're talking about other things. Now, there's gates that need to be repaired. Look at the top of your sheet on the right Top right, where it says sheep gate, you see that? That's in verse 1. Sheep gate, top right of your page. There is the sheep gate they need to repair. And there is the fish gate. You don't have to keep up with all this. Let me just tell you that there's 10 gates in all. They're all mentioned in this chapter. There's the fish gate. There's the old gate. There's the valley gate. There's the refuse gate. The fountain gate. The water gate. That has nothing to do with Nixon. There's the horse gate, the east gate, and the inspection gate, ten gates in all. Those names reflect some association. The way they're given those names reflects some association with that particular gate. For example, the sheep gate was near the temple, may have been so named because sheep possibly came through there on their way to be sacrificed. And so maybe they named the sheep gate. Fish were sold in the area of the fish gate. So they named it that, very logical. The gate you would not want to be repairing is the refuse gate, also called the dung gate, at the bottom of the page, probably. Now, there are also towers in verse 1, <clears throat> like the Towers of the Hundred, Tower of the Hundred, rather, the Tower of Hananel. Those, that was on the northern side of Jerusalem. It's my understanding that that was the most vulnerable area to attack because all the other places were surrounded by steep hills. This is the only place not naturally defended by a steep hill, so they had two towers for protection from that area. Protect the city. And there are other areas mentioned as you read this chapter. You probably ought to read this chapter later on when you get a chance. Um, There are other areas mentioned like the King's Gardens, the Broad Wall. By the way, Charles Spurgeon preached two messages called the King's Gardens, one one message, and secondly, the Broad Wall. Very interesting messages. Uh, That was an expanded part of the wall surrounding part of of Jerusalem. They expanded it, made it bigger and wider. But let me get back to the point here. There's a lot of details here we we don't have time to cover. Okay, Just a little heads up. On, this, on what's going on here. In chapter 2, Nehemiah said this, Come and let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. The people responded what? What did they say? Let us arise and build. Let's do that. Let's arise and build. What does chapter 3, verse 1 say? Then Eliashib the high priest arose with his brothers and the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They arose and built. And the first guy to punch the time clock was, of all people, the high priest, Eliashib. First guy there was Eliashib, the high priest, the spiritual leader. Now, Eliashib is the grandson of Jeshua, the high priest. Remember Zerubbabel at the beginning of Ezra? We talked about Zerubbabel. And in his time, Jeshua was the high priest. This is now Eliashib is the grandson 
of, Je- of Jeshua, the high priest. He's the high priest now. He and the priests are anxious to get to the work. They work near the area of the temple. Very appropriate. By the way, everything in here is very strategic in the way Nehemiah uh, assigned all these portions for people to work. And it even says in verse 1, they consecrated the portion of the wall they were building on. So you have guys doing one section here and people doing the next section and people doing the next section and so on like that. And they were, they even consecrated their, their part of the wall. They were priests. They could consecrate it. And you know that it shows that they did not just view this as a physical work. Now, what if you would have been there? Oh, my goodness. I got wood to deal with. I may have stones to deal with. I have dirt to deal with. This is so drab, right? That's not what the, the, the spiritual leadership thought of this. They considered this a spiritual undertaking as well. They consecrated it. This is sacred work. This is holy work they're doing. Near the end of the book of Nehemiah, they're going to dedicate the whole wall. But for now, they're dedicating their own portion, the priests are. The priests understood this. This wall is not just any wall. This wall is God's wall. These gates are God's gates. This work is the Lord's work. And they went at it. Now, think about this. The high priests and the priests, very respected members of the community, they would probably, people would probably be apt to tell them, look, don't don't do this. I mean, stand back. You guys are the spiritual leaders. Go study the Bible, right? You guys are the scholars. Go study somewhere. Go to the library and study. But these guys, these priests, these spiritual leaders did not think they were too good to get their hands dirty. They didn't think that at all. They were spiritual leaders, but they were the kind of leaders that Christ would have been pleased with later on, we might call them servant leaders. They served. They got their hands dirty. They did the work, the physical work. In John 13, Jesus stooped down to wash the disciples' dirty feet. You remember that? With a towel. And he said this, and he said, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do just as I did to you. This is, the, this is the kind of leader Christ was. Remember he talked about, hey, in the Gentile world, people lord it over people. They want to run the show. They want to be the big boss. It's not to be that way among you guys. But if you want to be first, you should be last. If you want to be the head of all, you should be the servant of all. We're here to serve. What did Nehemiah say in chapter 2, verse 20? He said, we're, we're God's servants. We're his servants. And what do servants do? They serve, right? And leaders should not hesitate to serve in a humble capacity. They should never think, well, we're above that kind of thing. We can't do that. So spiritual leaders here got their hands dirty. The third factor, just about everybody joining the effort. Just about everybody in this chapter joins in the effort to rebuild the temple, to rebuild rather not the temple, but the wall of Jerusalem. Now, there's two ideas I want you to see under this heading. Number one, every believer should contribute to the work of God. No matter who you are, no matter your age, no matter your occupation, no matter your background, no matter what you think you're capable of, your education, none of it matters in this, in this idea that everybody who's a believer should contribute to the work of God. Everybody should be doing that. There should be no one not contributing to the work of God. That's unheard of in the New Testament. And the Old Testament, I might add. Now, as you read this chapter, this is fascinating. As you read this chapter, they, you will see people of different, all kinds of different occupations who are restoring this wall. All kinds of different occupations, occupational backgrounds they come from, they're at work restoring the wall. There's about 40 work crews in all. 
This reminds me of Meta. <laughs> There's about 40 work crews of all organized to do this job here. There were priests in verse 1. We just saw that. Even the high priests. High priests don't do this kind of stuff. Eliashib did. They're, pre- they're Levites. Look at verse 17. After him, it names people after people working in different sections of the wall. After him, the Levites carried out repairs. They're working. Look at verse 26. The temple servants living in Ophel made repairs. Look at verse uh, 8, the beginning of it. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah of the goldsmiths, made repairs. A goldsmith working. Look at verse 32, the end of the verse. The goldsmiths and the merchants carried out repairs. Merchants leaving their jobs to do this work. There were government officials. Look at chapter or verse 8. The, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, verse, verse 9, rather. Next to them, the Rephiah, the son of Hur, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. An official. Look at verse 12. Next to him, Shalom, son of Halahesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem. Another official of the district of Jerusalem doing repairs. <clears throat> there were gatekeepers. Uh, look at verse 29. After them, Zadok, the son of Imer, carried out repairs in front of the house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, carried out repairs. Look at verse 8b. This is interesting. The second half of verse 8. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers. (laughs) Perfume maker. Stopping his job to come. Do you think the perfume guy got his hands dirty ever? He's out there working. Even some women participated, which was not typical at that time. Not typical at all. Look at verse 12. Fascinating verse. <clears throat> Again, next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, <coughs> made repairs. He and his daughters. Can you imagine that? The daughters of Shalom worked alongside their father on their assigned portion. What a great idea. The family working together to serve the Lord. A father and his daughters working together to serve the Lord. What a fantastic idea. In all likelihood, he had no sons or they would be involved too. Dad, t- dads, take, a, take heed to Shalom, who has his daughters involved in the work as well. Now, think about this. None of these people are professional builders. They're not professionals. They didn't train for this. I mean, goldsmiths and perfumers. They didn't train for They were volunteers. What do we see in this? Everybody is doing their part the best they can. Whatever background they came from, they did their part for the work of the Lord. Now, years ago, I read a book entitled Doctar. Has anybody read that book, Doctar? <clears throat> Nobody's read that book? doctor from America named Viggo Olson went to Bangladesh to be what they called then a medical missionary, He had a hospital built there, and at the same time, he was able to witness to many people in a unique way because he, you know, he worked on them physically. He was able to minister to them spiritually as well. Well, eventually, Bangladesh was ravaged by war. All kinds of destruction, houses destroyed, all kinds of problems. Viggo Olson was reading through Nehemiah. He came across Nehemiah 3. He read the chapter, and he said this. He said, I was struck that no expert builders were listed in the Holy Land Brigade. He calls that group the Holy Land Brigade. There were priests, <clears throat> priest helpers, goldsmiths, perfume makers, and women, but no expert builders or carpenters were named. 
He was so inspired, he went out as a doctor, who had no experience in these matters, went out and helped build, rebuild houses in Bangladesh as a testimony for Christ. They eventually built all the whole group together, 10,000 houses. He got that from, from Nehemiah chapter 3. Just think about this, just non-professionals from various backgrounds, all pitching in to get the job done for the Lord. What does this tell us? Every believer can do something for God's work. I don't care where you came from. You say, but I'm just, uh, I'm just a, <clears throat> you know, a daughter, a son. You can do something for God. Just a dad, you can do something for God. I'm just a, uh, a blue-collar worker. You can do something for the Lord. That's what it tells us. Now, I do not advertise, uh, advise people rather to do electrical work if you're not an electrician. <laughs> Probably not a great idea. But there is no excuse for doing absolutely nothing at all. It's, honestly, think about this. If, if people in this church are doing nothing at all, that's appalling. It's inexcusable. Each person has a role to play and no excuses. It's often said that 20% of the people of the church do 80% of the work of the church. <clears throat> it's often said because it's often true. 20% of the church doing 80% of the work? It shouldn't be that way. Serving the Lord is not a game with spectators in the stands watching other people work. It's not how it is. Everybody should be involved. Think about this. What if after Nehemiah had issued the challenge, hey, let's go rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. What if after he did that, 80% of the people came up and said to him, well, I'm afraid I can't help you out. I have my own personal business to attend to. I've got things going on. I don't have the time to do this. I don't have the energy to do this. I don't have the interest to do this. Or they just say nothing at all. That usually happens. People say nothing at all. They just don't serve in any capacity at all. What if that would have happened? People would say, why is Nehemiah so hyped up about this? And they don't pitch in and don't do anything. That is not God's will. That is not what God wants. Recently in this church, I stood up and made the first announcement in the bulletin. I read it for the first time from here with my own two eyes. And I read these words. We want experienced painters. And I stopped and said to myself, experienced painters. As I was reading this to you guys, this announcement, are we going to get experienced painters? (laughs) We need experienced painters in this church to paint these walls. You see they're being painted right now. They're still brown. They're in process. This has been done over here. And what, what, what did we get? We got people that showed up that some may have been experienced, others were not experienced, and yet what did we have? We had willing servants, people who were just willing to serve the Lord. Somebody even put their name back there, Bob, on that <laughs> part of the wall. I guess he thought he was building the wall of Jerusalem, but... It wasn't Bob that did that. Somebody else did that. It's still up there. I love that back there, by the way. You know, we, we just need people who are doing their part. That's all. Whatever you can do for the Lord. Like the lady in the New Testament, Jesus says she's done what she could. Do what she can. And, they, and, and you know, Ephesians 5, 16, Ephesians 4, rather, Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16, talks earlier about, you know, God gave apostles and pastors and teachers and so on to prepare people for the work of the ministry Verse 15 says, we are to grow up into Christ who is the head. From him the whole body grows, fitted and held together through every supporting ligament. As each one does its part, compared to the human body, as each one does its part, the body grows in love. Each doing his part. That's always the way in Scripture. It's always the way. But there's a second heading under this heading, just about everybody joining the work I want to mention. A spirit of unity should exist as we work for the Lord. You should have a spirit of unity. Did you notice the phrase again and again in this chapter, next to him, next to them? 
That phrase literally is on his hand, on their hands. Sometimes, because when one group had one section of the wall to work, and then the next group had their next section of the wall, they were so close to each other, they were almost on their hand, side by side, next to him. For part of the time, they worked real close together. And that's how they did it. Look at verse 2, for example, of chapter 3. Next to him, the next to the priest, the men of Jericho built. Next to them, Zakur built. Look at verse 4. Next to them, Merimoth made repairs. Look at verse 7, beginning of it. Next to them, Melatia worked. Look at verse 8. Next to him, Uziel repaired. Look at verse 9. Next to them, Raphia repaired. They work together, and they work together in unity. Notice in this chapter, there are no arguments recorded. None at all. There's no infighting. <clears throat> There's no selfishness. There's no calling attention to oneself. Everybody pitches in to, and avoids controversy of every kind. They have one goal in mind, finish the wall. Do this for God. You know, in order to work side by side with people in a church, it requires of us all to set aside our differences. Because in a church, you have all kinds of personalities. People from all kinds of backgrounds coming, backgrounds coming together with all kinds of ideas about how things should be done. And what happens in that situation? You can clash very easily. It happens a lot. You know, I <clears throat> attended a uh, <clears throat> conference. I just thought it was of Baptist Mid-Missions. <clears throat> Years ago, a Baptist uh, missions group. And they said, you know what the number one problem in mission work is on the foreign field? They said, this is their, what they said, not me. They said the number one problem is missionaries getting along with each other. That's what they said. To work in the church requires us putting aside our differences, our quirks, our agendas, and determining that we're going to get along with each other. We're going to love each other in the Lord. We're going to work together in unity. We're going to do this for God in a unified fashion, regardless of what you think, what I think. We're to be of one mind, right? Philippians 1, of one mind. One spirit. <clears throat> Paul admonished in the church at Philippi, Euodia, two women, Euodia and Syntyche, were not getting along with each other, although they had served the Lord for some time, they were known, not getting along with each other. Paul had to admonish them in Philippians 4.2. He said, I urge, I beg, Euodia, please, ladies, I beg Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. <clears throat> it's not a private letter. This is inspired scripture forever. This appears in Scripture. How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity, Scripture says. On the other hand, how unpleasant it is when they don't dwell together in unity. It can be major problems. You know, when the Lord saved me, what he did, he brought me into a community of believers. A community of believers. He wants, we call it the church. The church is not made up of individuals who all march to the beat of their own drum. It's made up of believers who, we're like a team. We're like a unit. We're like an army all marching together for the same goal. That's how it should be. The fourth factor in this work they did for the Lord, some refused to help. Some people refused to help. Verse 5, chapter 3, Moreover, next to him, the Ticoites made repairs. Those guys aren't working for, for Tico, although I'm going to call those people Ticoites from now on. They made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of the masters. Uh-oh. You know what? When everything was going great, just when everything was going great, these guys got to show up, right, to spoil the party. They didn't want to support the work of their masters. I said earlier that just about everybody, that's why I said that, 
Just about everybody joined in the work. But that doesn't mean that everybody joined in the work. Almost. These people didn't join in the work. The lit- By the way, the verse that literally reads, very interesting background of this section, here, this phrase, their nobles did not support the work of their masters. That verse literally reads, their nobles did not bring their necks in service of their masters. Did not, they did not bring their necks in service of their masters. Now, whoever these nobles were, they were important people of some they were of some importance as to their status in life. That phrase, that they did not bring their necks to serve, really has to do with the back of the neck. This is an expression that comes from oxen who were plowing in the field. And oxen, they would put these heavy yokes on the oxen to get them to plow together. And the oxen didn't like that. They resisted having the yokes put on their necks, the back of their necks. They would resist it. They would fight against it. There's a verse in Jeremiah that refers to this idea, a great chapter in Jeremiah. Jeremiah had been prophesying that Babylon was coming to judge Judah. And the Lord said, hey, when Babylon comes, if you comply with Babylon and you do what they say and you serve the king and you, do, and you, you obey what they say, because I'm going to send you into judgment, but if you obey what they say, you're going to live. You're going to live. Jeremiah 27:12 says this, Bring your necks, Judah, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Do it. In other words, we're talking about being willing servants. Be willing to serve. Don't resist him. Don't be, don't be stubborn like that. <clears throat> so we're talking about people with a willing heart. But the nobles of Tekoa refused to, to serve. They didn't want to help their masters who probably wanted them to build the wall. They refused to do that. They wouldn't do it. We don't know the reason. It doesn't say. Now, was it, what are the possible reasons? Was it fear of the enemy? <clears throat> because Geshem, the Arab, one of the enemies, was near that area. And maybe they were afraid he would attack. Uh, was it laziness? There are believers who are too lazy to serve the Lord. Just flat out lazy. Won't serve the Lord. Uh, did the nobles think that such work was beneath their dignity? They were nobles. But there were other nobles. There were other people of high-ranking that worked, that built a wall. Why not them? Whatever the reason was, it was not a good enough reason. It doesn't tell us the reason. Not a good enough reason not to work on the wall. Think about the implications of their refusal to work. Because they refused to work, think about this. You don't serve the Lord, think about this. They went against Nehemiah's authority, number one. That was one of the implications. We're not going to work. Okay. You're going up against Nehemiah's authority. He's the one that was commissioned by the king of Persia to do this. And and God himself. Number two, they were of no help to their brethren. Did not help their brethren one bit. No help. Number three, they slowed down the work because they wouldn't participate. Had they participated, the work would have been quicker. Number four, they missed out on serving the Lord. Man, they missed out on an eternal thing. Serving the Lord. There's nothing good. Let me tell you this. There's nothing good about not serving the Lord. The whole cause is hurt when we don't serve the Lord. These guys were from Tekoa, the nobles. Now, do you know who else was from Tekoa? Amos the prophet. He lived at another time in history prior to this moment. And I'll tell you what, if he would have known what these guys were doing, he would have been so disappointed at the way they represented his hometown. How embarrassing. You got perfumers out there. You got goldsmiths out there. You got daughters out there working. No, we're not going to do it. They refused to do it. Now, what a contrast there is between these guys who refused to put their necks out to serve on the wall of Jerusalem 
What a contrast between them and two New Testament characters that immediately came to my mind who put their necks on the line for God's work. And Paul commends these two people in Romans chapter 16, verses 3 and 4. Paul, writing to the church of Romans, says this, Greet Prisca, or we know as Priscilla, and, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks. They risk their own necks to not only who I give thanks, but also the other Gentiles give thanks for them as well. Priscilla and Aquila, that godly couple in, in, in the book of Acts, could never do enough for the Lord. They could do, never do enough for his people. They could never do enough for the church. Thank God there are still people like that today. Thank God for that. But unfortunately, there are still people like these nobles of Tekoa who just don't want to do anything at all for the Lord. It's just hard to understand. The fifth factor in this, a few went the extra mile. A few people went the extra mile. Look at, let's start with Baruch. Look at verse 20. Baruch. Verse 20. Next, uh, after him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section. Wow. He not, he not only did his job, he took it to the next level. He zealously repaired his section. That word zealously comes from a word meaning to burn. You could say he repaired the wall in a burning manner. I guess we could say he was on fire for God. As he was building, is this that big of a deal? This guy's putting a wall together. That seemed like a big deal, right? He's doing it with zeal. You know, for Baruch, building the wall was not just a job. It was a passion. It was a, he gave his all. He, he took advice from the Apostle Paul long before the Apostle Paul wrote the words of Romans, 11, Romans 12, verse 11, which tell us not to be lagging behind in diligence, but rather to be fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Fervent in spirit. Even in the New Testament, the word fervent there, zeal, has to do with being hot, to be hotter, to be boiling. Same type meaning. That, that, that idea of being zealous, that can only come from total de- dedication to Christ. We should never settle for a half-hearted service for Christ. Baruch didn't. Look at Merimoth in verse 4. Go to chapter, verse 4. Next to him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, made repairs. Go to verse 21. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired another section. He went the second mile, repaired not one section, but two sections. He was not the only one that did that. He, got, he, he finished his section, jumped in and helped somebody else out to finish their section. Look at the Tekoites in verse 5 again. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs. First part of the verse. Tekoites made repairs. Look at verse 27. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section. Not every Tekoite refused to work. The nobles refused to work. But those of lesser stature, they worked. They worked, they got involved. In fact, they did more than expected. In fact, I wonder, did they do this because they were making up for the slackers of Tekoa? Another guy, Nehemiah, look at verse 16. After Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, official of half the district of Bezor, he made repairs. Now, this is not the same Nehemiah as the Nehemiah who's leading the project. This is another guy. He comes from Bezor. That's about 13 miles south of Jerusalem. He went out of his way. He could have said, why should I get involved? I don't live in Jerusalem. The wall that's surrounding that city, their building, is not going to help me at all. It's not going to be secure me at all. It's not going to do anything for me. Why should I help out? But he went out of his way because he wanted to help his brothers and he wanted to serve the Lord. And he did that. Now, sometimes we might need to do more than is asked of us in the, in the work of God. Sometimes it may take longer than we thought it was going to take. 
We may have to exert more energy than we thought we were going to have to exert. It may even inconvenience us at times. Can you imagine the work of God inconveniencing you? Maybe it's going to do that. Can you imagine that? You know, can you imagine the people that have been persecuted for the faith and have died as martyrs? A little bit inconvenienced? We have a hard time even showing up at church sometimes. In all kinds of circumstances, we should be willing to serve the Lord, even going the extra mile. And finally, the sixth factor, the Lord recognizes all who work for him. God recognizes every one of his people who work for him. I have heard it said many times that we should not focus on the people mentioned in the Bible lest we make too much of them and not enough of God. However, I have to ask myself the question, why does the Lord keep mentioning all these people all the time? In both Testaments. The answer is simple. God works through people. You have two things going on. You have God, you have people. God is working through the people constantly. These people are not perfect. They're sinners, oftentimes sinners saved by grace. It's not wrong to talk about people like Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible. God talks about these people. He includes their names in his inspired work. Look at this list of people in Nehemiah 3. All these obscure names. He included that in his inspired work. God works through people. Now, I hope we know that every believer is totally flawed. doesn't matter who it is. Even Daniel. I can't find anything wrong with Daniel in the book of Daniel. But even Daniel's a sinner and confesses his sin in Daniel chapter 9. You know, I hope we understand that God alone should receive the glory, not man. But God gives us these people in the Bible to help us to know how to live, how he worked through them, or how not to live. That's just a fact. You know, there's negative examples, Ezra 10. you got all these names in Ezra 10 of people who were married godless women, and he lists them all for everybody to see forevermore. And then what about Hebrews 11? Lists these great people of faith and said God worked with these people. What about Romans 16? We mentioned Priscilla and Aquila. Paul's writing the book of to the people of Rome, of Rome, and he says, hey, I want to greet all you people in Romans 16. And he, and he starts telling about all these people, and he calls some of them hard workers. Some of them, one he calls a choice man of the Lord. Two people he says they're outstanding. That's what the scripture says. Now, you may never receive recognition from people on earth. Nobody may care what you do for God. may never be seen by anybody. But the Lord knows what you do for him. Look at all these people in this chapter. Nobody else knows who these people are. Lord put these names here. He did not forget their work. It's clear he did not forget their work for him. He listed them all. We may trip over their names, but the Lord didn't forget who they were. I've always loved the encouraging words in Hebrews 6.10. For God, listen to this great verse, Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name and having ministered and is still ministering to the saints, he's not unjust to forget that. He's not going to forget what you did for him. It's important to him. You may labor for the Lord in relative obscurity. You may be never be in the limelight. You may serve the Lord in a way that nobody ever knows or sees, but the Lord sees it, and the Lord knows. That's all you ought to be interested in. I'm doing this for him, not for, and I'm doing it because I love my brethren, but you're doing it for him. So let's just serve him because why? We love him. There needs to be no other reason. Serve him just simply because you love him and you want to glorify him and honor him because it's his work. Let, let there be no true believer who does not participate in the Lord's work. Every believer, should, it goes without saying, should be doing something for God. Let us serve him fervently. And let's be willing to leave our comfort zone when necessary. Sometimes we may have to leave our comfort zone. 
and go a little bit out of the way. The Lord will bless those who serve him from pure motives. And I think Nehemiah had it right when he said, the God of heaven will give us success. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful again for your word. We pray that you will help us to serve you with a willing heart, Lord, from pure motives, that we might love you with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. We might do what we do for your glory and honor. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.